Ah, that sweet, sweet dial aftertaste. Okay. Hello, everyone. Man, that sucks. I don't know why. Whenever I'm saying hi, I suddenly move to vaudeville. Okay. Hello, my friends, my friends of friends, and my enemies. I don't know why I've decided to say that. I just, I don't know. I like it. I like the way it sounds. It sounds, it sounds kind of fancy. I'm, I think it's kind of fun, but okay. Anyways, hi. <laughs> What's up? How are y'all doing today? Y'all doing good? So, yeah, that's good. Good. Good week going so far. I'm recording this on a Tuesday. I'm very, very hungry right now, but I'm using that to kind of fuel me for this episode because <laughs> man do we have two juicy stories today um so today's episode i'm i'm gonna start off pretty soon because today's episode is going to be long i have two very interesting stories today um i'm trying not to make it super long but hey one of these stories is a new kind of recent development of a story and one is from the late 30s to the early 90s so i just kind of wanted to wanted to jump right in, take you off my watch, because it's hurting my hand. <laughs> I wear a watch every single day. It's gotten to the point that whenever I, like, don't wear it, I'm, like, very confused. The trigger warnings for today's episode is murder, dismemberment, sexual assault, rape, suicide, cannibalism, and self-harm. We do have a pretty, uh, a pretty trigger-heavy episode today, so if you feel like you may need to go back listen to some chiller episodes. I personally think that my chillest episode may actually be the ghosts of Halloween. So, just what I'm saying. Just slide that in. Okay, so Noel Brown was a 69-year-old dad who lived alone in a flat in the south of London in an apartment complex on New Butt Lane, which I am really only mentioning because ha 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 butts. <laughs> Anyways, uh, he he was a well-known figure in the neighborhood and was described by everyone who knew him as nice. However, in his earlier years, he was sent to prison for 33 offenses, such as sexual assault and burglary. Bur- burglary. Burglary. Burg- burglary. Burg- burglary. Burg- so he was kind of a shitty dude. Uh, he was released in 2004 after serving an eight-year sentence for one count of rape and six counts of sexual assaults. He was a registered sex offender, but was deemed to be low risk by probation officers. While he was behind bars, he met his adult daughter for the first time, who was a mother of two, a 49-year-old primary school teacher named Murray Brown. She was described as being an incredibly kind and loving person, and after meeting the father and daughter became very close, and they saw each other regularly. Mr. Brown was last seen at his home around 8 p.m. on November 30th, and two days later his daughter used her own key to get inside the home. This was the last time anyone saw either. The neighbor of Mr. Brown called the police on December 4th, and when the police got into the house, they found the lifeless body of Marie Brown. She was fully clothed and she still had her handbag in her hand and the detectives believed because of this that she was attacked as soon as she walked into the apartment. Um, The policeman who had to break down the door to get inside went to the bathroom and they found Mr. Brown lying in the bathtub. The lower part of both of his arms and his right leg was severed. 
A child's stool was laid at the side of the bath, which they assumed was used for the killer to kneel and cut up the body. Um, there was no signs of the missing limbs nor any murder weapons, and his time of death was narrowed down to December 1st because of some data on his computer that showed that it had been switched off for the last time at 10.14 a.m. on Friday, which was December 1st. Oh. Man, I got that entire paragraph without really messing up that much. That was impressive. Go me. <laughs> so there was a camera pointing directly at Mr. Brown's door. And of course, it was the only camera on the entire street that didn't work. Because why would it work? Honestly, that would make things too easy. There were 500 suspects. But in particular, there was two men who were seen at Mr. Brown's flat on Thursday night. Very suspicious. Because there was no sign of a forced break-in, it meant the killer had to get the key fob for the apartment. It's kind of like, um, I don't know if it's like that in all college campuses, but in my college campus, you have to use like a little, a little key card to kind of get inside the dorms. It's kind of like that. Um, and Noel's fob was actually used when he was supposed to be dead, which is very sus. So now they had a confirmed suspect who was seen avoiding someone on the street carrying a big, big backpack, like a backpack that can carry around two arms and a leg, and he was deemed rucksack man by the detective team because they were very creative and clearly geniuses. After reviewing some footage, on December 1st, a man on a bike was seen entering the complex Mr. Brown lived in, and he was called Bike Man. Like, the pure genius that the detectives on this case had is amazing. Can you guys believe that they are so creative and so awesome? Just wow. By this time, the data from the little little key fob thing uh, showed that after his death, Noel's key was used four times to enter his flat. So, four visits and two possible murderers. After a month of cold leads, a DNA breakthrough was found on the end of a tube grip found next to Mr. Brown's body and in Mr. Brown's bed. Um, I, tube grips are used to kind of cut off circulation, which could explain the fact that there was not a lot of blood at the scene of the crime, but there was like, you know, some bleach next to him, so that could be it, but it's never confirmed that the place was bleached. So thanks to the DNA match, there was finally a name for the killer, Nathaniel Henry. He was a 37-year-old man who lived several miles from the murder scene. He coached basketball and volunteered to help underprivileged children. And he also killed two people. So, you know, give some, lose some, I guess. <laughs> okay, it's not okay. So after figuring out who he was, the detectives realized that Henry had actually been reported missing on December 12th. And on December 31st, he was found having committed suicide by overdose in an electrical cupboard. 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 I wrote down cupboard because I read this from, an, from a British article. It's, it's essentially just a janitor's closet. He was, he was found in a janitor's closet. The motive to the murder is not fully known. However, there is one motive that seems to be one that police believe. However, due to the fact that sexual assault victims, their names are never actually given to the public and aren't given, like, on-track records typically, um, it can't be confirmed. But he was linked to one of the victims that Noel was convicted for raping, and the killings were believed to be done as revenge. Uh, since he passed before being interrogated, it is not known why Henry waited 13 years before killing Mr. Brown. Um, but there is no evidence of 
pre-planning for the murder. Yeah, and that's, that's the entire story. It's actually, this one's kind of quick, the second one's kind of longer, but yeah, that's kind of crazy. I just, like, and I don't know, like, of course, like, nobody has the right to decide, like, who gets to live and who gets to die, but I don't know, that's just, uh, it really is kind of like a moral thing, honestly, because, like, of course, Mr. Brown wasn't a good guy, but Nathaniel had no, like, he shouldn't have killed him. It's, it's morality. It's, it's the complex complexity of life and the complexity of the human condition. And as Gandhi once said, let's move on to the next story. <laughs> ah, this story is actually the one that was suggested by a listener named Dakota. So Dakota, if you're listening to this, hello. How are you today? Thank you for the story suggestion. You're the best. Cool. So on March 13th, 1933, Donald Gaskins was born in Florence County, South Carolina. And growing up, he was bullied for having a very small frame and was given the name Peewee, which was a nickname that he hated. And that is the way I will be addressing him during this episode. So his real name's Donald, but I'm gonna call him Peewee to the point that I'm probably gonna forget his real name. But that's okay, because fuck this guy. So his home life and school life was filled with violence. Uh, he was beat by his parents. He was beat up at school and blah, 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 Not a reason to kill people. I don't feel bad for him at all. At age 11, he dropped out of school actually and started working on cars and met two dudes by the name Danny and Marsh. And these three friends sucked. Like if you were walking down the street and you saw them coming your direction, you would want to cross the street because they were such shitty little boys. They would burglarize homes, they picked up prostitutes, and would sometimes sexually assault younger boys. Uh, the trio was actually caught sexually assaulting Marsha's little sister and were all beat till they bled, which they deserved because they were little bitch-ass punks. So Danny and Marsh moved off and Pee-wee started burglarizing alone. In 1946, a girl who knew Pee-wee caught him burglarizing her home. I'm gonna keep on pronouncing that word wrong. Okay, I'm so sorry. And she charged him with an axe. He got away and struck her in the head and arm before running away. Luckily, the girl survived and Pee-wee was arrested for assault with a deadly weapon. He was sent to the South Carolina Institute School for Boys and was sentenced to stay there until he was 18. He was attacked and assaulted when he got there and blah, 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 blah. Hey, I'm a little, I'm a little tiny boy. Please help me, Pee-wee. I don't know why he would say his own name. Anyways, so he did get protection from the, like, big man on campus in exchange for sex, and he eventually was able to escape. After escaping, he married a 13-year-old girl while working with a traveling carnival, but he returned to the reform school for reasons, I guess. He never really gave any. He was just like, yeah, I'm going back. So that's cool. Whenever he was released at the age of 18, he began working on a tobacco farm and got involved in insurance fraud with a partner. And after burning down several barns, he then attacked a farmer's daughter who questioned him. She survived the attack and he then received a five-year sentence for attempted murder. In prison, he killed his first person uh, to try and become the big power man, which are basically the really buff dudes in prison TV shows who say things like, I eat bitches like you for breakfast, and are like, give me your ramen. Is that? Yeah. That was a really, really good impression, Gracie. You're really talented. He was sentenced to solidarity for nine months and became the power man, so yay or whatever. Uh, and his baby wife divorced him in 1955, which caused him to freak out and escape prison. 
He then married a woman named Betty Gates shortly after. They went to quote-unquote break out Betty's brother, but he ended up actually being Betty's husband, and the two were sent back to jail and Pee-wee-wee, and Pee-wee-wee, and Pee-wee was given extra nine months to his original time. How long was he supposed to be in there? Did I write it down? I feel like I should have got Yeah, five years. So it was five years, nine months now. He was released on August 1961 and returned to South Carolina and started to burglarizing again. He was able to avoid arrest by working with a traveling minister as his driver and assistant. So it was easy for him to like, you know, escape from town to town. Uh, In 1962, he was arrested for the statutory rape of a 12-year-old girl, but he stole a car and ran off to North Carolina. There, he married a 17-year-old girl who turned him into the police for statutory rape. In November 1968, he was paroled and vowed never to return to prison. But since he was married three times by this point, his vows were pretty pointless. Eh, Am I right, folks? Am I right, folks? Ah, I should stand up. In September, <laughs> in September 1969, he picked up a hitchhiker in North Carolina, and when she actually laughed at his sexual proposition, he beat, assaulted, sodomized, and tortured her, eventually weighing her body down and drowning her in a swamp. After this encounter, he felt like a release of this pent-up rage and aggression he felt inside. He kind of described it as just having bad feelings because despite being a full-grown man, he was still a little bitch baby. Uh, so, you know, yeah, he's, he's a messed up dude. He would actually torture victims and he would cannibalize them and watch the fear in their eyes like the fucking freak that he was. Uh, Pee-wee did prefer female victims, but he would also torture and assault males he came across. By 1975, he had found 80 boys and girls along the North Carolina highways, um, but he considered these murders weekend recreation because he did not know them and considered killing his personal acquaintances as serious murders. Most people actually did try to avoid him because he was crazy, but some people considered Pee-wee to be like a friend of theirs for some reason. I can only, like, equate that to hanging out with the weird kid in school because you feel bad for them. You know, like, you see the weird kid sitting in the corner eating his Lunchables, like, upsettedly, and you go over there and you're like, hey, what's up? Like, let's be bros. One of his friends was a woman named Doreen Dempsey, who was a pregnant mother of a two-year-old girl who was leaving town for the weekend. She got a ride from Pee-wee, who took her and her baby to a wooden area where he raped and killed both Dempsey and her baby. He buried the two together. Pee-wee was 42 in 1975 and had been steadily killing for the past six years, all on his own. But after killing three people whose van broke down, he called in old ex-con Walter Neely to drive the van to his garage, paint, and resell it. Pee-wee now was a hired hitman, and in 1975, again, uh, a woman named Suzanne Kipper paid the tiny man $1,500 to kill her ex-boyfriend, Silas Yates, which I feel like it could just be because of, like, inflation, but, like, that's a pretty, it's a pretty sick deal for us, for a hitman. I don't know how much hitmen are now. Um, I'd assume they're pretty expensive. I have, I haven't been to that side of the dark web yet, and I don't think I ever want to. So, two men by the name John Powell and John Owens handled all the communications between the buyer and the killer, and on February 12th, 1875, Diane Neely lured him out of the house due to car troubles, and Pee-wee snatched him, 
and murdered him as Powell and Olsen watched. All three accomplices helped bury the, helped bury Yates. Diane Neely and Walter Neely do have a connection. I believe it's sister brother, but I couldn't confirm. But her and her boyfriend decided to blackmail Pee Wee by asking for fifty hundred in hushed money. And of course, he killed them both after arranging a meeting for the payoff, which was stupid of them to do because, like, this dude's obviously crazy. Like, he's obviously crazy, and you don't try and blackmail crazy people because they're crazy. Which, like, whatever. So, anyways. Around this time, Pee Wee tortured and killed more people he knew, including a 13-year-old girl, Kim Gilkins, who rejected his advances, and two robbers who tried to break into his repair shop. He enlisted Walter Neely's help again to bury the bodies, and actually showed Neely where the other bodies were located. Did a red flag just go off in your head? It should've. I mean, it should've, should've started going off at the beginning of the episode, but, like, you know what I mean. So after the disappearance of Kim Gelkes, authorities finally became suspicious of the violent man who had been to jail multiple times. Um, they searched his apartment and found Gelkes' clothes. And then Pee Wee was indicted for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Now, I don't condone murder. I really don't. If you are a murderer, I do not like you and you should go to jail and face trial for your crimes. However, if you are a murderer, you need to, like, tie up your loose ends. Like, seriously? Because good old Neely cracked under the pressure while waiting for the trial and showed police Pee-wee's private cemetery. Like, okay, sick, cool, good job, man. Like, I'm glad he did it, but, like, come on. Murderers, choose better friends. That's, that's the lesson for today. If you are a murderer, choose a better friend. Is that okay to make a joke over? I'm not sure. There's no one in here to tell me. So, ah. <laughs> uh. In the cemetery, they found the bodies of the Sellers, Judy, Howard, Diane Neely, John Knight, Dennis Bellamy, Doreen Dimpson, and her child. On April 27th, 1976, Pee Wee and Neely, those rhymed, were charged with eight counts of murder. On May 24th, 1976, a jury convicted Gaskins of the murder of Dennis Bellamy and was sentenced to death. Now, for a good two seconds just then, I was like, who the fuck is Gaskins? Then I realized that's Pee-wee. So, Pee-wee was sentenced to murder. To, so, yeah, anyways. To get out of the, you know, death penalty, he confessed to more murders because apparently that helps your case. In November 1976, the Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was unconstitutional, so his death sentence was changed to seven life sentences. Ironic. In 1978, however, the death penalty was restored, and this wouldn't have affected Pee-wee at all because he already got his sentence overturned, um, but then he killed a dude in prison named Rudolph Taylor, um, so he was put back on death row. That was cool. Uh, so to avoid the electric chair, he began confessing to other murders, like the murder of Peggy Coutinho, but prosecutors had already charged and sentenced a man named William Pierce to life for that murder, uh, so Pee-wee's confession was rejected, which I did not know that a confession could be rejected. That's weird. I felt a little bit weird about that part, but I'm just going to move past it. Uh, he wrote a book in the last months of his life called The Final Truth, which was published in 1993. He talked about all of his murderers and his terrible wife, his terrible life, the poor little baby, he has such a terrible life. 
He tried once again to get out of the electric chair by self-harming, but on September 6th, 1991, he was pronounced dead by electrocution. And that is the most prolific serial killer in South Carolina. Boom. Boom. How's that for a crazy story? Whenever I read it, because Dakota sent me kind of like a little bitty like, like summary, I guess, like it like blew my mind. I was like, I have to talk about this. This is this is crazy. So yeah, that's, that's the story of Pee-wee, who, who's a little Pee-wee baby. All I could think about, this is probably terrible, but all I could think about whenever I kept on reading Pee-wee is if all these things were being committed by, like, a beanie baby. Like, you know what I mean? Like, just like, just like a little baby beanie baby toy. Just a little baby beanie baby toy. Can't do no harm to nobody. But I always feel like I have to, like, try and teach a lesson with these stories. Um, my only lesson for today's story is um, uh, get better friends if you're a murderer and get friends that you can trust. <laughs> Please don't do that. If you're a murderer, don't have any friends. Actually, um, go away. Mur murderers should go away. That's my declaration for today's episode. Oh, man. I've gotten to that point in my semester. I currently have three more weeks and then I am done with my fall semester of this year. I'm very excited about it, but however, I am stressed. I am tired, but I am thriving, so it's okay. I'll survive. So, uh, oh, good thing, good thing. My good thing is I, okay, I'm gonna be honest with you. <laughs> Today's been kind of rough. Um, I have been trying since Friday to figure out how to get my Sims 4 game to work because it is currently breaking my laptop and it's been very stressful and I've been trying to figure it out and it is nothing's working but I'm working on it EA has actually been very helpful um I make a lot of jokes about EA not giving a shit but they've actually been very very helpful with me trying to go to Discover University so once I have that I'm gonna that'll be my good thing once I get that figured out because I'm gonna get it figured out today that'll be my good thing because you know Yay, The Sims! Uh, and I guess that's really it. So it's not even a good thing happening right now. It's a, it's a good thing that will be happening. Um, oh, I may go bleach my hair today. Not, like, my all my hair. I'm just, I, like, I saw a picture of this girl who had, like, half of her bangs bleached, and I was like, holy shit, I have to do that. So I went and bought bleach, because I have the impulse control of a tiny, tiny squirrel. Uh, now I'm, I'm, I'm maybe bleaching my hair tonight, so that's exciting. Can't wait for that. Yeah, that's my episode for today. I, I guess that's it. <laughs> oh, anyways, my eyebrow. Oh, I keep on saying anyways. Uh, do you ever just like keep on repeating a word and you're like, man, this is annoying. That's how I am with like the word so and um and anyways, but anyways. <laughs> oh my gosh, that reminds me of like the How I Met Your Mother thing where it was like the drinking game because Robin kept on saying, but um. So if you guys ever do a drinking game involving whenever I say so, let me know because that would be hilarious. All right, I'm going to go ahead and get going now. So, <laughs> so, so, so. Thank you guys for listening to me today. I hope you all have an amazing day. I hope you have an amazing week. And I will talk to you the next time I can't sleep. Bye, guys. Boop.